Right. Well, this evening we're going to continue studying a, a very relevant portion of Scripture uh, for all of us. Uh, if you were here last time, uh, you will know that we talked about uh, the issue, or, or really the sin, of worry. And uh, what we found is that uh, at some point in our life, all of us fall prey to this sin of worrying, especially about the specific issue here in this passage, which is financial or provisional worry, things that we physically need to survive on this earth. And, uh, you know, this has been an issue with mankind from the beginning, hasn't it? Um, we have all worried ourselves over the most basic needs, food, clothing, shelter. And, and the reason for this is because we understand in our heart that unless we have those things, we're not going to live very long, right? We um, are subject to those things in our life. But obtaining these things proves to be very stressful for us at times. And uh, I, I got to tell you, I know that we live in a culture and in a country especially um, where many of us look at things as needs when they're really not, right? You know, we, we talked about that back when we were going through the Lord's Prayer and we uh, saw Jesus teaching us to pray for our daily bread. And you know what? Many of us in, in America don't understand um, what it means to depend on God for daily provisions, right? Uh, most of us have a uh, food in the refrigerator to last us several weeks, you know. Um, and so we get this um, blindness a little bit to what is truly a need. And, and here, uh, in this passage that we're going to look at tonight, Jesus isn't talking about excess or even the amount, but rather he, he's trying to get us to, to get the right perspective on these basic needs. This whole sermon uh, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount um, has had one major point throughout all the topics that we've discussed, and it's this. Jesus keeps showing us how inadequate and inferior our efforts are at accomplishing or amassing anything of eternal significance on our own. From the security of our very soul, all the way down to our attitudes and our actions. In every point that Jesus has brought up in this sermon, here's what we've heard. Jesus says, you can't do it, but I can and this issue here of anxiety is no different. And I want us to, to keep that in the forefront of our minds as we continue to look at this issue this evening. Uh, last time we were together, we uh, just kind of scratched the surface of what Jesus was saying here about financial anxiety. We, we, just, we introduced the topic, but what we really talked about mostly uh, in our time together was um, how we bring financial anxiety on ourselves uh, by the way, we view money today. We, we make money a life or death issue because we believe that's how we get the things we need, right? We believe that if we have enough money, then everything that we need in our life can be taken care of through that. But Jesus is saying, listen, money is not that big of an issue. Money is not nearly as important as we make it out to be. But because we, as humans play so much emphasis on it, we do all we can to get as much as we can, right, in this life, even if that means we borrow and charge um, money we don't have, and it gets us in such a world of hurt, 
And, and you know, this goes for Christians and non-Christians alike, right? There, there are just as many Christians uh, who are struggling financially as are non-Christians. And there are just as many Christians who are in debt as non-Christians. And that's what we talked about last time was how debt is one of the biggest financial worries that we have and that it is not the life that Jesus intended for his people to live. And the issue of financial anxiety um, doesn't start in our pocketbooks, in our billfolds, right? Financial anxiety starts in our hearts, which then trickles into our minds and then it affects the way we act. And so that's why Jesus took so much time in the previous passage before the one we're going to look at tonight. And he taught us about the effect money has on our hearts and our minds. And it leads us away from God quicker than anything else. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, your heart is. So the perspective Jesus is trying to show us here is that the value we place on earthly stuff should not affect our value as God's creation. We cannot equate what we have as far as earthly possessions with how valuable we are as God's children. Man, if you remember, we, we spent a lot of time talking about how valuable we are to God. And just how everything else in creation He spoke into being, but man, with us, He, he formed us. With his hands. Man, not only did he, he form us with his hands, but he breathed life into us. He gave us a soul. He gave us a mind. He gave us a will. But most importantly, he created us in his image. We are image bearers of God. The Bible says that because of that, we are precious in his sight. And we compared ourselves um, as Jesus does in this passage to um, birds of the air, right? And how God takes care of the birds, even though they don't seemingly do anything to merit that provision, right? They don't bring anything to the table, so to speak. Um, the Bible says that if he takes care of small, insignificant birds, will he not do that for us? In fact, Jesus wants us to look at it from this perspective. Not so much as what God will do for us or how much God will do for us, but he wants us to focus in on how God truly looks at us. Jesus says, are you not of more value than they? So what I wanted us to remember from last week, and I want to just reiterate this week, is what we have is not the measure of our value. Rather, who we belong to is. Man, it doesn't matter what the bank account looks like. It matters who you belong to. And our main point was this. God will provide everything we need to live the life He created us to live in order that we may bring Him the most glory possible. You see, just like the only expectation of those birds are to be birds, right? And they bring God glory by being birds. 
We are to be the people of God and trust Him to give us everything we need to fulfill the purpose which He created us for. And the question we asked was simply this. Very simple but very relevant question. The question was, man, do we, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that God loves us enough to provide for every need that we have? This evening we're going to focus on the passage itself a little more and explain the method Jesus is using here to to make this point to us. And and then we're going to talk about why this is such an important thing in the life of a believer. You know, financial anxiety has a much deeper spiritual implication than just money. Financial anxiety points to a soul issue. We're going to look at that tonight. And then uh, we're going to finish up tonight by by talking about what we are to focus on instead of worrying about stuff. So let's uh, let's dive into the passage, Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 25 and go to the end of the chapter. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Get this, O you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the unbelievers, seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So as we get into this passage this evening, I want to start by pointing out a few things from here. Um, There are seven arguments or or questions that Jesus gives us or poses to us in this passage that we've got to thoroughly examine, not just in our heads, but but in our hearts. I mean, this is a a brilliant technique that we see uh, all throughout Scripture that Jesus is using here to kind of show us or help us reach the conclusion ourselves. And he kind of shows us uh, a little bit how foolish we are to think that God would, would not provide for our every need. It's a, it's a common teaching technique found throughout Scripture. One that comes to my mind right off the bat is, is Isaiah chapter 1, where God goes before the people of Israel, and, he, and He's talking about how sinful they are. And how stained with sin they are. And he, and he says to them, 
come, come to me. Let's let's reason together. In other words, uh, let's hash this thing out. Let's talk out loud. Let's roll it around in our minds, right? Let's think about this from every angle. And he says, listen, though your sins are as scarlet, I'll, I'll make them white as snow. But we've got to come together. We've got to talk through this thing so that you will understand that I love you and that I will make you white as snow. And so Jesus is using the same technique here in this passage. And it's important for us to see this here because here's the thing. Jesus understands what a huge issue financial anxiety is in our hearts. He understands the struggle that we, that we come across and that we have when we read this passage and, and really we do try not to worry about money only to find ourselves struggling and worrying about it. We all know what that's like, right? We, if we're honest, we all know how we read something in Scripture and it goes directly against our predispositions or, or our tendencies and we struggle with those things. And I'm sure you've heard preachers say, you know, you just got to suck it up and do it God's way. You know what, I've been guilty of that before. And I tell you, that's wrong. And the, the truth behind what's being said there isn't wrong. We, we do eventually need to get on God's side and to see it God's way. But when we say it like that, we just get over your feelings. Just get over what you're struggling with and, and do it God's way. It paints a very distorted picture of God's expectations for us in our struggles. And I want to explain that a little bit this evening. Well, what Jesus is teaching us here is not so much about finances and about anxiety over finances. That's the, the context, but it's something a little bit deeper. He, he's teaching us about faith. Trusting our good Father to provide for every need in our life. And let's be honest, as humans, it's hard to believe something without seeing it, isn't it? That's exactly what the definition of faith is, right? Hebrews 11.1, 1, what does it say? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen. That verse seems to say that that faith is believing in the unseen. And it is. It is. But I want you to understand that while faith is believing in the unseen, it is not the same thing as having blind faith. There is a difference, and I want to explain it. Blind faith is a faith that has no substance under it. It has no foundation. It's simply believing something will come just out of thin air with no explanation as to how it came to be. And folks, that's not what true faith is. Our faith that we're supposed to have in God always has substance behind it. And what is that substance? It's God Himself, His character, His nature, what He has already revealed to us about Himself through His Word. There is always, listen to me, there is always evidential proof to validate our faith in God. And folks, that's not a blind faith. We trust God because God has proven Himself over and over in our lives to be trustworthy. Therefore, His expectation for us is not to 
blindly believe something we don't know is there, but it's to trust the God that we have seen in the past and present to be in our future as well. Does that make sense? There is always substance to our faith. And that's what Jesus is going to show us here through these seven arguments or questions here in this passage. So before we talk about those arguments, I want to clarify exactly what Jesus is telling us here. The context says, um, don't worry about provisional needs. Jesus is saying uh, it's needless to fret and worry about life's basic needs. God is going to meet those needs. There's a common misconception in many of us that God won't sufficiently meet those needs. He's not going to fully do it. Part of that's because we live in a culture of excess and, and we believe that what we need is actually not as much as we actually do need. Let me rephrase that. We, we believe we need more than we actually do. But the other misconception is that we don't believe that God is going to fully or completely meet all of those needs. He, we, we believe sometimes that He only starts and then the rest is up to us. Kind of the old saying, you've heard it before, God only helps those who what? Help themselves. This is an expression of what I believe is faithlessness. It actually points to a character deficiency in God. If we truly believe that God only helps those who helps themselves, man, when would God ever help us? Let me put it to you another way. When would we ever be saved? Man, if we had to initiate the process of salvation, man, none of us would be saved. Praise God, God doesn't just meet us halfway, right? See, Scripture makes it very clear that the God that we serve is a God of completeness and sufficiency. He, he isn't a God that does something 70% or even 99%. He's a God who does things completely. Paul the Apostle Paul expressed this in uh, Philippians 1.6 when he said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That, that statement by Paul um, was a statement not just about God's work, but Paul's faith in God's work. See, Paul was sure that God would be faithful to bring what he promised to completion, to fullness. I want to give you a couple more examples of how God fully provides for us because, folks, this is so important for us to see. If you have your Bibles, go to go to Psalm 104. I love this psalm. It, it speaks um, very clearly to God's complete provision for all His creation. I want to read a pretty good amount to you. Uh, psalm 104, let's go 1 through 28. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes his clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it would never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. 
At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it's night. And when all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth. Is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships, and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to him to them, they gather it up, and when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Man, what a great psalm about God's daily provision for all of His creatures. Let me show you another passage that, man, I, I think is probably one of the most important passages for us to understand as not just humans, but as Christians. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5 in your Bible. Flip on over there to Romans Chapter 5. Give you a little background on what's going on. This is kind of a, a mini sermon in a sermon, so I want you to kind of follow along with me uh, very briefly. I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I really want us to get this. Paul in chapter 4 of Romans is talking about uh, the faith of, of Abraham, right? Um, and how um, Abraham was made righteous before God because of his faith, right? It says, that according to Abraham's faith, he was made righteous. It was accounted to him as righteousness because of his faith. And Paul says, listen, Abraham is in heaven today because he believed God. Right? And Paul tells us that Abraham's faith was not just for Abraham's benefit, but it was recorded, shown to us for our benefit as well. We will be made righteous when we believe in him who raised Christ from the dead. So just like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, we are made righteous through the same faith in the Christ who died for us. Are you tracking with me so far? 
Okay. Paul has just said we are saved when we exercise faith. But faith in what? The gospel. When we believe in God just like Abraham did. Right? We're, we're not, uh, we're a little bit different from Abraham though in the fact that Abraham believed in a promise. Right? But we have evidence or substance behind our faith. We're called to believe in an actual event that happened on our behalf, right? That is the gospel, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for our justification before God and for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what we're called to have faith or believe in. Now, the question that Paul has to answer for us here in Romans 5 then is how fully did God forgive our sin and justify us in the gospel? And that's where chapter 5 comes into play. My prayer, folks, is that you see this. Oh, I pray that you understand what, what Paul's writing here. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, because of all that stuff that we just talked about with Abraham, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, uh, we also have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. But get this, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received Reconciliation. Folks, I, when I read that, as I was studying that the other day in my office, I almost lost it. You understand what's being said in that passage? This is, this is what Paul is telling us. We were called to believe God in order to be saved, and that's called faith. But the question is, man, how fully, I mean, how full, how complete is that salvation through our faith? Paul says, listen, you're not just justified before God. That's, that is the act of uh, being declared innocent before God, right? Remember, we're in the courtroom of God and we're standing trial for the sins that we have committed. And God looks at us and says, guilty. And the only thing we can do is agree. And then Jesus steps forward and he says, I'll pay their debt. And because Jesus died for our sins, 
we now go from being guilty to declared innocent before God. But here's the thing. He says we're not just justified. You see, because God would be completely um, within his bounds of authority to say, you're free, now go away. Just because God justifies us doesn't mean he still has to like us. The Bible says, not only are we justified, declared innocent before God, we are then made at peace with God. There's, There's no longer any debt that has to be paid, but now there is an ability to enter into a relationship with God, he considers us a friend through the gospel of Jesus. But not only that, Paul goes on. Through the gospel of Jesus, we are not only given peace, but we are given full access into grace. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. So he justifies us, declares us innocent, But then we're made at peace with God, right? He likes us, and now he gives us full access to his favor. We stand, and Paul says, or or the Greek really means to make our home in that grace. We are seated deeply, deeply rooted, immovable in that grace. So we're justified. It means we miss out on his wrath. But we're also at peace with God. But then we're given complete access to, to be rooted in his favor. And Paul says, because we're rooted in that favor, it brings us a hope of the glory of God. And we have this hope because we experience the love of God poured out on us through the gospel. And then there's more. It's kind of like one of those infomercials, right? When was all of that made available to us according to Romans 5? When did God send Jesus to be all of that and to give us all of that in our place? Was it when we realized we needed it or when we said, man, I feel like I deserve this? No, Verses 6 and 8, Paul says, while we were still weak, while we didn't realize it, while we didn't understand that we needed grace, that we needed forgiveness of sin, while we were still weak, and then he goes on in verse 8, while we were still sinners, think about that, when we didn't even want it, God did all of that before us before we ever realize we needed salvation. Folks, what an amazing picture of God's love for us and provision on our behalf. But that's not even the best part. Paul sums it up in verses 9 through 11. He says, since we are justified by his blood, much more, much more are we going to be saved from God's wrath. There is a guarantee that we will fully not have to experience God's wrath because 
while we were enemies, when we should have received his wrath, we were reconciled to God. While we didn't deserve salvation, God gave it to us. And that salvation didn't just rescue us from hell. Man, it secured for us salvation into the life of Jesus. God went above and beyond our need of salvation from hell, and he gave us life with Jesus. You hear me say this all the time. We're not just saved from something. We're saved to something. God didn't have to save us to anything. He would have been completely within his grace to just say, you don't get to go to hell. But he, he didn't stop there. He gave us life in Jesus. Everything that Jesus is, I get to partake in. Everything that Jesus has offered me in his grace, I get to partake in. And folks, he didn't have to do that. He went above and beyond what I needed in the gospel. Oh, I pray you understand that tonight. What a picture of God's full provision of my salvation. We are fully saved into life with Jesus. Folks, if we, um, if we ever wonder about whether or not God will fully supply our needs, we need not look any further than the cross. The cross is the clearest picture of how God fully took care of our sin, fully appeased His wrath towards us, fully gave us access to himself. Now he fully gave us life that will never end. God is a God of complete provision. And the questions that Jesus poses to us in here, here in Matthew chapter 6, they point to the same thing concerning these earthly, temporal things. And, and I want us to put it in the proper perspective. And that's why it took so much time for us to go through Romans 5. Because listen, if God took such thorough care of securing our souls in eternity, why would he not fully supply our earthly needs here? Just think about it. He saved us to himself. Why would he not meet our earthly needs? So let's go through this text really quickly and let's just kind of let Jesus preach to us. And I want to, uh, to consider all these questions and wrestle with them in our own minds and hearts. And you know, I just pray that we'll be convinced when we leave here that God um, is a God who fully secures everything in our life. The first thing Jesus wants us to look at and consider is the birds of the air. We talked about this last time. Um, this, this means to truly observe them, right? Don't just... Don't just breeze over them. He says, consider them. Look at them. They don't worry. They don't store up. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Jesus wants us to see um, in this passage that the provisions God gives us are, are purely, listen, from His grace and not from our merit or entitlement. The birds don't do anything that would make God say, they've earned their keep. He feeds them anyway. 
And then Jesus asked the important question that we talked about last time. Are you not of much more value than they? <laughs> Folks, given what we just saw in Romans chapter 5, I hope that's not even a question of how valuable we are. But maybe we need a little bit more convincing. And I believe that's why God gave us Romans 8.32. Listen to what it says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Folks, we could we could go home now. <laughs> That's it. That is, that is the summation of what Jesus is preaching here. If he didn't spare Jesus for us, will he not give us everything else that we need? Now, I pray that that verse puts to death every ounce of unbelief in our hearts. What else can God do? What else could he do to prove that he will provide? And if he gave us his own son, why would he withhold bread from our tables and clothes from our back? Why would he not provide a roof over our head? And so Jesus goes on because he understands our human frailty, I think he pushes it a little bit deeper, a little bit further for us. He says, I know that you still fret and wring your hands about the cares of this life. And so listen to what he says in 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Here's what he's saying. This question is a really good question for us to look through and, and wrestle with. He's saying, what does your worrying accomplish? I mean, what does it do at all? Does it do anything that's worthwhile? You see, all worry truly does is drive us deeper into despair. What is despair? Hopelessness. Hopelessness. You see, in despair... And when we're hopeless, it wreaks havoc on our faith. You see, to despair is to give in to the misery of unbelief. Mm, think about that. It means we don't believe. And yet, unbelief is the opposite of faith, which is what it takes to not only be pleasing to God, but to receive everything from God. You see, remember I said earlier that this issue of financial anxiety uh, goes much deeper than just finances? Here's why. You see, worrying kills the very thing we need to be acceptable to God. You cannot have faith and worry at the same time. And Jesus says nothing productive comes from fretting and worrying about things that are out of our control Anyway, I love Luke's description of this passage. Um, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but it's in Luke uh, chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, uh, listen to what he says. Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 25 and 26. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Listen to this. If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? I love this. 
This is what he says. Can your worrying add a single hour to your life? And we know the answer to that, right? No way. No matter what we do, no matter how strong or powerful we are, we know that we only get 24 hours in a day. And there is nothing that we can do to add to that time. It's fixed, right? It's far above our control. It's something we can't change. We must accept it. But notice how Jesus looks at something as complex and impossible as manipulating time, and he compares it to something that's small. Jesus compares worrying about food and clothing to changing time. It's no big deal to him. There's an important truth we've got to understand in this. See, so often we make our worries for provisions so great in our minds that it's like changing time. And Jesus says, listen, I'm in control of time. If I need to add hours to the day, I can do that. Just ask Joshua, right? And if you aren't in control over something as simple as changing time, what makes you think that you're worrying about food and clothing and shelter is going to make a difference? The point he's making here, folks, is that worrying does nothing but feed our unbelief. It sends us in the opposite direction of where we need to be. And if we still aren't convinced, Jesus asks us to look at one more thing. Look at the lilies. Look at the plants. They don't do anything to contribute to life other than just be pretty, right? Some of us could relate, maybe. I don't know. Yet, yet God in His love and complete provision adorns them more beautifully than King Solomon who had it all. He says they're going to be burned up in the fire. And so God holds us with so much more regard than the flowers. And so he exhausts all these questions on us. Is there anything in your mind that would truly say in faith, God's not going to provide? If we're a believer, the answer for that is no, there's not. And so then what are we supposed to do? If we're not supposed to focus and fret over our daily needs, if we're not supposed to get into this rat race of culture to get what we need and keep it, then what are we supposed to spend our time doing? What's the application? Very quickly, so important. Verse 33. Here's what we're to do. Seek first. Oh, get that. Write it down. First. Above earning a living, above a mortgage, above a 401k, above a grocery list. First, seek the kingdom of God in his righteousness. Everything else will be added to you. Seek the kingdom, folks. Seek the kingdom. He says, here's what you're to avoid, right? Don't seek the things of this life that wrecks our faith. Seek, pursue the thing that strengthens it. You see, unbelievers are only living for the here and now, right? This is their kingdom. And so the rat race is seeking their kingdom. But we've got to remember, folks, we don't live for this kingdom. We're citizens of heaven. Our kingdom is not here. And I could preach a whole series of messages 
on Matthew 6.33, but here's just the cliff notes. Our focus is to be on the kingdom, which where God is ruling and reigning. And you know what? If we're believers, that's not just a geographical location up above the sky. God's kingdom is in our hearts. We're to focus on the things that expose the kingdom of God to this fleeting kingdom of earth. We're to pursue righteousness, which the only reason we were to do that is not to boast in ourselves or make ourselves prideful. We are to seek righteousness because it reflects the glory of God through our actions, furthers the kingdom. And Jesus says when we seek his kingdom and righteousness over trying to boost and advance this earthly kingdom, he has promised, I will give you everything that you need to do that. We come back to the one thing that makes it all happen. Faith. Do you believe that tonight? More importantly, do we believe, not just do we believe what he's saying, man, but do we believe him? Do we believe him? Here's how I think you can know that, if you truly believe it. Answer this question, am I really saved? Have I truly, and am I, truly exercising faith in the gospel of Jesus? Do you believe that your soul is secure with him in heaven? If you believe him for that, then you can certainly believe him to provide everything else in your life. Are you convinced of that this evening, folks? He wouldn't withhold his own son from us. Why would he withhold lesser things? I want you to just close your eyes and bow your head. and I just want to pray for us that the Holy Spirit would just enable all of us to, to just grab a hold of this tonight. And I want to read a passage of Scripture and then I want to pray for us. And the passage in Luke chapter 12 again, in that same dialogue. Jesus makes a really profound statement, and I love it because I think it does put us in the right perspective of, of who we truly are before him. This is what he says in Luke chapter 12, verse, uh, verse 32. I love this. Fear not, little flock. What you think about that? Jesus refers us, refers to us as sheep. Little flock. Little sheep, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Think about that. It's not just His pleasure to give you bread, to give you clothes. He wants to give us the kingdom. If He wants to give us the kingdom, He'll give us everything else. Father, we come before you and we acknowledge first our, our struggle with unbelief and how, Lord, even though you have provided over and over and over, we still wring our hands and fret with the doubt that maybe you won't come through this time. And Lord, your son has taken us through a series of questions to hopefully 
in our hearts and in our minds, we will see just how ludicrous it is to think that God, who takes care of the birds, who clothes the lilies, would withhold those things from us. But God, you went further than just rationalizing through these questions. You gave us the gospel itself. And you told us that when we didn't deserve it, when we didn't realize we needed it, when we would have died and gone to hell forever, you made a way for us to not just be forgiven and justified, but God, to have life through your son Jesus. Oh, you're so good to us, Father. You're better than, Lord, we have words to declare. And so tonight, my prayer for us all as we leave is that we would believe your word. We would believe what you have said to us, but God, we would also believe you, your character, your nature. And Lord, we would understand and submit, Lord, in our lives to God, who we know you are. That you would protect us from unbelief. That pushes us to despair. That causes us, Lord, to shipwreck our faith. God, I pray that we would be men and women of the kingdom who are so convinced that you're going to provide for every earthly need that we have that we spend more time making your name great than we do anything else. So Father, take this prayer and use it. Answer it according to your good and perfect will. Change us by it for your glory. We pray these things in the precious and holy and good name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.